So I'm, I'm really pleased now to introduce our final speaker, that's Nick Cross. So he's Professor of Human Genetics in Medicine uh, at Southampton University, and he's also the Director of the Wessex Regional Genetics Laboratory. He's obviously an expert who, who many of you will be aware of um, in molecular pathogenesis and of haematology um, malignancy, and it, it's kind of right therefore that he's been leading the writing group for the good practice guidance on genetic tests to diagnose and manage patients with myeloproliferative disease and myeloproliferative disorders, MDS, uh, neoplasms. So um, I'm going to hand over to Nick now. Uh, and again, just a reminder for your questions, and we'll come back and take questions um, after this talk. Many thanks. Okay, good afternoon. My name is Nick Cross, and I'm based in the Wessex Regional Genetics Laboratory in Salisbury. And I'm going to talk, be talking to you about this good practice paper, which will hopefully be out in the BGH in the not too distant future on the use of genetic tests to diagnose and manage patients with MPN, MBS, MPN, and related disorders. And this has been put together by myself, Anna Godfrey, Catherine Cargo, Mamta Garg, and Adam Mead. So the background of this GPP is really that there's an increase in availability and complexity of genetic and genomic tests. There's been inequity about the availability of the tests and variability in how they have been applied in practice. And this is in the process of being addressed, at least in England, by the production of a national genomic test directory, which for the first time will list all the, the genetic tests that are available on the NHS and funded on the NHS. And there's a test directory that exists at the moment. This is being currently revised and eligibility criteria being developed for um, to clarify which patients are eligible for which tests. So the scope of this GPP is MPN, but excluding CML because there's been a guideline relatively recently on CML, MDS, MPN. Myeloid lymphoid neoplasms with eosinophilia and rearrangement of PDGFRA, PDGFRB, FGFR1, or PCM1 JAK2, which we abbreviate to MLN EO, and we also cover mastocytosis. And this, this paper is really aimed both at hematologists who are ordering the tests, but also at laboratory staff who are performing these tests and reporting them. It has been, it's gone through the BSH review process, it's at the final stages now. Um, it was born from the NCRI MPN subgroup and has been made available to all members of that subgroup for review. It's also been reviewed by the chair of the NCRI MDS subgroup and also lead scientists from all seven GLHs and representatives from corresponding laboratories in the devolved nations. So first of all, then, to focus on classical BCRA1 negative MPN. Uh, these are the four so-called MPN driving mutations that we're all familiar with. So PV is characterized in the great majority of cases by JAK2V617F. But there's a small group of patients who test negative for V617F, but are positive for JAK2Xon12 mutations. And then there's a very small group of cases who appear to have bona fide PV but the molecular basis is not understood. ET and PV, the pathogenesis is, is broadly very similar. Um, slightly more than half of cases testing positive for JAK2 B617F, about 5 to 8% for 
MIPL exon 10 mutations, um, which mostly affect a single residue, tryptophan 515. A quarter to a third of cases have CalR mutations, CalReticulin, and these are focused in the last exon. And there's a group of about 7 to 15 percent who um, have bona fide or appear to have bona fide ETMPB based on extensive marrow and other investigations, but test negative for these MPN driving mutations. And these are referred to as triple negative. So just a bit more about the test for these MPN driving mutations. Uh, these can be done on peripheral blood DNA, which makes them very convenient as a screening tool. Many centers still form sequential tests, so they would look for JAK2B617F and then go on to look at, for other mutations. It's far more cost effective to have a mini NGS panel that looks possibly all four of these mutations at the same time. There are some technical considerations. Um, most mutations on, on myeloid panels, in whatever form they are, have a, a technical limit of detection of around about 5% variant allele frequency. That's very commonly used. JAK2V617F is unusual because it's, it's relatively commonly seen in the normal population in an age-related fashion, so age-related clonal hematopoiesis. Um, many of these cases test positive for JAK2V617F despite having normal blood counts. And there's no clean cutoff to distinguish um, so-called CHIP and an MPN. But the consensus is, is that for diagnosis of MPN, you need a limit of detection of at least 1% to 3% JAK2V617F, so lower than most other mutations. Caroticulin comes in different types. Um, the common ones are type 1 and type 2, which are 52 base pair deletions, 5 base pair insertions, respectively. But most other variants, which um, are far less common, can be categorized as type 1-like or type 2-like. And that's important to report because that classification does have some prognostic significance. The group spent a lot of time talking about whether variant allele frequencies should be reported routinely for these abnormalities, and particularly for JAK2V617F, where there's good evidence that the, the mutation burden of the variant allele frequency correlates with the um, at least how symptomatic the disease is. And that correlation is very clear when you look at large groups of patients. It's arguable how meaningful and useful it is when you're looking at an individual patient. Many centers do report quantitative levels, particularly for JAK2B617F. Some don't. And it felt that the evidence was not sufficient at the moment to mandate that quantitative values should be reported. They may be useful to monitor response to therapy, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, we became aware that um, one or two centers were using much broader NGS panels for screening. Um, we believe this is not the most cost-effective approach. These panels are expensive. And in this scenario, the great majority of referrals that, that go to diagnostic labs do not have an MPN at all. And I put less than 20% here, but in some centers, it's below 10% of referrals. So if you have a relatively expensive test, that's, that's a, not a very efficient way to do it. If you are using broader panels, though, we think it's important to focus only on these MPN driving mutations and report those um, and only go on to look at other mutations if there's a good clinical reason to do so. 
And the reason for that is because of the substantial overlap with age-related clonal hematopoiesis that can cause confusion. And also the more genes you look at, the more variants of unknown significance there are, which is um, a significant burden on the laboratory and may cause clinical confusion as well. Uh, this slide just shows CalR mutations. This is the type 1 abnormality at the top here, the common 52 base pair deletion. But you can get a whole load of other variants that look very similar, and the type 2 5 base pair insertion. Uh, they're all in exon 9. They all result in a frame shift, and they all result in the same frame shift. So you get uh, addition of, of aberrant amino acids to the end of the caroticulin protein. If you pick up a variant that's a not a frame shift or not that frame shift, it's an, it, it, you pick up an in-frame deletion, for example, that is not pathogenic and should not be reported. Okay, so a bit more detail about who needs to be screened. So for patients with persistent erythrocytosis or thrombocytosis, it's pretty straightforward. We have well-defined cutoffs in the WHO guidelines, hematocrisis of greater than 0.52 for males. 0.48 for females, and platelet count of greater than or equal to 450. But there are quite a few scenarios where you might want to sensibly screen for MPN driver mutations, even um, with blood counts within the normal range. So one is unexplained splanchnic vein thrombosis, um, where JAK2V617F is particularly common. Um, and screening for MPN driving mutations may also be considered in selected patients with unexplained cerebral vein thrombosis. CALAR variants in these scenarios are, are rather less, are quite a bit less common, but they do crop up. Um, and I think, again, if you have a, a targeted MPN panel that's looking at all four of these abnormalities at the same time, these, these nuances really sort of fall away, and that really is the most efficient way to do it. Screening for MPN driving mutations should be considered for patients with arterial or unprovoked venous thrombosis who have a mildly or variably elevated hematocrit or platelet count that persists over at least two to three months. Uh, there are many areas where it's extremely difficult to come up with clear, precise recommendations, and clearly clinical judgment needs to be used in, in many of these scenarios. Finally, it's important to exclude BCR able in cases with persistent thrombocytosis, but actually this, this is extremely rare and almost always associated with atypical features, so basophilia, left-shifted granulocytes, small hyperlobated megakaryocytes. Um, we suggest focused screening for BCR able rather than screening everybody with persistent thrombocytosis. So what about myeloid panels? So um, myeloid panels look at 20, 30 or more genes that are mutated in myeloid malignancies. They're extremely useful and they have value um, for the diseases which we're covering here. So, so when are these most appropriately applied for classical b cerebral MPN? Well, for patients with a JAK2, CALAR or MIPL mutation, this is recommended for all patients with myelofibrosis who are candidates for an allogeneic stem cell transplant and may help in the decision whether to go ahead with the transplant or not. And I'll show you in a couple of slides some of the prognostic scores that are helpful in that regard. 
It's recommended for cases with additional cytopenias at diagnosis, unexplained dysplasia, increased blasts, including blastic transformation, ring sideroblasts, peripheral blood monocytosis, or atypical clinical features. And this is really um, if you're interested in nailing down a specific diagnosis that may not be as simple as classical B cerebral MPN. Uh, and occasionally there may be markers that indicate an adverse prognosis, which might influence therapy or possibly even a marker for targeted therapy. And then a rather broad recommendation that may be considered for other patients if the additional genomic data will guide clinical management. That's clearly very open-ended and in part recognizes the fact that this is a, a changing field and, and guidelines have to evolve. So this is the MIP70 plus score for myofibrosis. This was developed by um, Dr. Teferi and, and Vanuki. There's an online um, portal for this where you can input hematological data. And then the key um, molecular and cytogenetic indicators are an absence of a CALR type 1 or type 1-like mutation, a high molecular risk gene, which are defined as mutations in ASXR1, IDH1 or 2, EZH2, SRSF2, or this specific U2AF1 mutation involving residue Q157. If you have two or more of these genes mutated, that's worse. And then carrier type, um, which is listed here. So there's a very high risk carrier type, which I won't grind through. And there's an unfavorable carrier type, which is basically a, a uh, di diagnosed by exclusion of various other things. And these can be put together to come up with four risk categories, going from a, a hazard ratio from 5.9 down to, to um, 1.8, 2.1 at the bottom. So many people use this. It's simple to use and it's pretty established. The other main score of interest is the Sanger score, um, which, which is highly flexible with regard to hematological criteria, parameters, but also molecular criteria. And again, there's an online portal for this, um, as shown here. And this is an example of a patient with either primary or secondary myelofibrosis. The JAK2 was detected and nothing else, age 64, male, and these were the blood counts here. And the output is in this form. There's an ex the median event-free survival, predicted event-free survival of seven years. And you can see the probabilities of being alive with myelofibrosis of dying after transformation to AML or dying as a consequence of myelofibrosis. And then this is exactly the same patient where I've added in a TEC2, a TP53, and a chromosome 7 deletion. And you can see the pictures transform. There's now a, a greatly increased risk of transforming to and dying from AML, and the expected event-free survival is now only two years. And um, many people are finding this scoring system extremely useful. So what about patients who um, have a suspected MPN that they are negative for JAK2, CALR, and MIPL? So when a bone marrow has been done and additional investigations have been done and the really strong suggestive evidence for an MPN um, and particularly PMF, either with or without features of MDS or MDS-MPN, then it is worth doing a myeloid panel to pin down the diagnosis. For most patients with erythrocytosis or thrombocytosis, 
Um, this is simply not worth it. Um, but again, may be considered in individual cases. What about disease monitoring, quantitative assays of clonal burden? Uh, you need sensitive tests for this. The standard panel won't um, give you much information. So you need targeted quantitative PCR or digital PCR that can allow a limited detection up to 0.01%. Uh, these are particularly useful in the context of allogeneic stem cell transplant for myelofibrosis, where basically the recurrence of disease is strongly associated with relapse. They're not recommended for most patients, but they may be considered where demonstration of a molecular response would influence clinical management. So um, for patients treated with ruxolitinib, there's a very poor correspondence between molecular response and um, clinical response you can get very good meaningful clinical responses with no change or minimal changes in JAK2 levels. Interferon is probably slightly different. You can see molecular emissions and there's probably a greater correlation with those molecular emissions and, and clinical benefit. So these are two scenarios where um, molecular monitoring might be considered. Okay, moving on to atypical EM, uh, MPN. So first of all, chronic eosinophilic leukemia and uh, MLN-EO. So nothing has really changed since the the, the um, guideline was published four years ago now in the, in the BJH. So patients with persistent unexplained eosinophilia should be investigated initially for FIT101 PDGFR-A by FISH and or RT-PCR. And this is an indication for imatinib and most patients respond extremely well. There are lots of other fusion genes associated with eosinophilia and the most common route to pick this up is by doing bone marrow cytogenetics or targeted fish for the genes that are typically involved. Um, and these are the approaches that are recommended to screen for other rare fusion genes. If a fusion is, a suspected fusion is picked up by cytogenetics, it's very important to confirm that by molecular methods so these patients can be monitored um, whilst on therapy. This is where we are at the moment. I think in the future, this is going to change. We're going to be doing more genomic screens on these kind of patients and picking up these fusions perhaps a little bit more often. So genes that are, are particularly important are PDGFRB, JAK2, FGFR1, variant ABLE fusions, all of which can be targeted by various tyrosine kinase inhibitors with various degrees of efficacy. Response to TKIs in fusion gene positive cases um, should be monitored by quantitative PCR or equivalent methodology, um, possibly with backup or official cytogenetics, but qPCR I think is better. And basically on a time scale that's um, similar to CML. And certainly for FIT101 PGFR alpha, there are some patients who've stopped treatment after sustained deep molecular responses and uh, remain in treatment-free remission. So again, another parallel with CML. Myeloid gene panel for um, these patients with eosinophilia and KIT D816V testing should be considered for patients with persistent unexplained eosinophilia that test negative for fusion genes. So KIT D816V is seen in about up to 5% of cases. Myeloid gene panel can identify various, uh, can identify evidence for clonality basically giving rise to a diagnosis of chronic eosinophilic leukemia. 
a typical MPN, so chronic neutrophilic leukemia, MPNU, so CSF3R variants, either with or without SETBP1, are very strongly associated with chronic neutrophilic leukemia, and this will be on most myeloid, it will be on all myeloid panels, I believe, um, rather than an individual targeted test, but that's useful for diagnosis of CNL. MPNU, very heterogeneous um, group of cases, most of which test positive for an MPN driver mutation, but they don't technically fulfill the criteria for an MPN according to the WHO guidelines. So moving on to mastocytosis. So this is um, for adults at least characterized in the great majority of cases by the KIT D816V mutation. Uh, mastocytosis can be patchy in the marrow and present at very low levels in the peripheral blood. So you need a very sensitive test to pick this up. So you need quantitative PCR or digital PCR that's been optimized down to a limited detection of up to 0.01%. So similar to the sensitivity for MRD assays. You could use peripheral blood as a primary screen. The level of disease is almost always higher in the bone marrow. So if this, the blood is negative, um, but there's this very strong clinical suspicion of mastocytosis. It's worth going on to consider testing bone marrow. If negative for KIT-D816V, um, and again, there's a, a high level of clinical suspicion, morphological suspicion of mastocytosis, it's worth looking for other KIT mutations. Um, so variants at D816 are most common in adults. Um, but in children, KIT D816V is only seen in about 50% of cases, and other variant KIT mutations, some of which are responsive to a masnib, are much more common. So a wider KIT screen is recommended for children. Myeloid panel analysis is not recommended for most patients, but it is for those with advanced systemic mastocytosis who are candidates for allogeneic stem cell transplant, and there are various genes, particularly SRSF2, ASXR1, RUNX1, that have been associated with an adverse prognosis in, in advanced SM. And finally, for those cases with um, systemic mastocytosis and an additional hematological neoplasm, a myeloid panel is, is useful to characterize the nature or identity of that AHN which um, might influence options for therapy, and is more often than not, uh, turns out to be CMML. And finally, MDS-MPN. Um, BCR should be excluded in all cases, and rearrangements associated with MLM-EO should be excluded in case of eosinophilia. And for diagnostic purposes, myeloid gene panel analysis, bone marrow cytogenetics, or SNP array is recommended uh, again, this, these, these suggestions, these recommendations have to be used with, you know, sensibly. Uh, would you do this for every elderly patient? Not necessarily, but these are the techniques that are useful for pinning down the diagnosis of these cases.